in the State Department, our care is limited, confined to primary care and mental health. Beyond that, our role is coordinating and facilitating specialty referral in the local economy or deciding if they need specialty care beyond our scope, then we evacuate them to where they can get that. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with Dr. Andrew Hyatt, a former Army family medicine physician and current Singapore area regional medical officer for the State Department. Dr. Hyatt talks about his experiences deploying with the 67th Cache to Hungary to support Operation Joint Endeavor, and then his subsequent journey from private practice to the State Department Foreign Service Medical Team. Dr. Hyatt has served around the globe, including locations such as Yemen, El Salvador, Pakistan, Canada, Germany, and Ukraine. Dr. Hyatt talks about the opportunities available for foreign medical service with the State Department and how prior service in military medicine provides an excellent preparation experience. Find out more about Dr. Hyatt and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome Dr. Andy Hyatt to Wardox. Andy, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you. Dr. Hyatt, you obtained your Bachelor of Science at Brigham Young University. Tell us about your pathway to joining military medicine. Well, starting off, I first decided to go into medicine itself, and that was backed up by a family history, if you will. I had a great-grandfather, a grandfather, who were both osteopathic physicians, a brother who is a, a, a DO also, and in family medicine and in the, in the Navy. My mother was an army nurse in World War II and another sister a nurse. So there's a lot of medicine in the family and a lot of military medicine. And that gave me a lot of ideas when I was young and deciding on a career, but certainly medicine is a durable, meaningful career. And then once I was looking at medical school, I learned about the Health Professions Scholarship Program, the HPSP program. And that was a great avenue for me. I was awarded an Army scholarship, and that gave me student clerkships, residency training, all with great opportunities. So it was a means to get the training, but actually I, I saw it as probably one of the best training opportunities I could get. So you ultimately went to Des Moines University for your medical training. What sparked your interest into family medicine? Part of it is the bent that osteopathic medicine has towards primary care. And all through the training, they're always emphasizing primary care. That, that was confirmed for me because of some pivotal rotations that I had as a student. One in particular was a a great program. It's probably not unique among medical schools, but they had us go for four months in a family practice clinic. And my rotation that I happened to get was with a family doctor in a small town in rural Minnesota. And he actually provided us housing. So me and my family moved to Minnesota for four months while I worked with him in his small clinic. 
and it was just a, a very pivotal rotation. Be able to do all kinds of stuff, big variety, being involved in patients' lives. That was great. Plus, it helped, too, that my brother was a family practice doctor. Did you get to do any clerkships in Army facilities and, and look at different specialties, or did you do family medicine in the Army while you were in medical school? Actually, quite a bit, yes. Because I was on scholarship, my summer activities or electives that I had during the summer could be at Army facilities. I did a family medicine ro rotation at Fort Bragg, which ended up being my residency match. Did an OBGYN rotation at Madigan and the old Madigan and took at Fort Lewis, Washington. Did a, another GYN rotation actually at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, which was kind of fun. While I was there, President Reagan happened to be in nearby Mexico and fell off a horse and that came to our hospital. That was highlight of my student rotation at Fort Huachuca. And I did some other rotations, for instance, psychiatry was at Travis Air Force Base in California. I took advantage of the military connection anytime I could. Part of that, because they the, there were opportunities where I wanted to be, but also I wanted to maximize my exposure to possible residency sites and the match. Yeah, it really sounds like you're able to take full advantage of that. So why don't you help set the stage for us? So once you completed your family medicine residency, you served in Germany at the Kitzingen Germany Health Clinic. You were also assigned to the 67th Combat Support Hospital. Just give us an idea of what the state of Europe was like in the mid-90s, particularly as military medicine was poised to help the country. The mid-90s were, were an exciting time, in, especially in Germany. That was the, right after the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall. In Germany specifically, there had been quite a robust U.S. military presence. But after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was quite a drawdown of forces. And for instance, in medicine, we had gone from 10 army hospitals in Germany down to when I arrived there in mid-1994, three army hospitals and corresponding consolidation of the outpatient clinics. So there was a lot of change in Germany and the army medical system, but then also thinking of what else was going on in the world during the whole time that I was there in Germany, they were negotiating with the problems in the former Yugoslavia and the Dayton Peace Accords were signed in 95, which ended up leading to a big long deployment that I was involved in. But also the, just generally, I could see with less forces, less military medical assets and increased missions in various places, the chance of me deploying was going up all the time. So tell us a little bit about that deployment experience. I assume you're talking about the 67th cash going to Tassar, Hungary to support Operation Joint Endeavor. Tell us a little bit about that experience and any lessons that you learned that helped you with future challenges. Yeah, that was a pivotal time. The 67th Cache was tasked to mobilize from our base in Germany to an air base in southern Hungary. It was a Hungarian Air Force base. 
where we set up the hospital in tents on the flight line. And then that base was the major staging grounds for troops flowing southward into Croatia, Bosnia, and Serbia. Some of the elements from our hospital were even further deployed down into Bosnia. It was kind of, it was a lot of fun uh, being on the airbase. Not only we set up the full hospital, but the Hungarians continued to use the airbase and they still had old Soviet era jets and things that they, they would get out on the, on the runway and we'd watch the MiGs take off. And it was almost like they were putting on an air show to impress us. <laughs> but up close, when you'd see the planes taxiing by, they were actually kind of rickety. Some of the, the, almost like they were being held together by bailing wire and stuff. But and that was interesting. What kind of healthcare scenarios were presented to you when, when you're there covering a medical mission? What, what kind of things were you seeing? There were two scenarios, basically. Troops coming in from either stateside or Germany headed into Bosnia or casualties, usually from accidents, uh, coming out from the theater of operations. So we set up the, our busiest Part of the hospital was just the emergency room. And we would see little minor accidents that would happen around the base, but sometimes casualties that would come up from the theater. And then our base was the launching pad for evacuations back to Germany, back to Landstuhl. And we were kind of a transit point in that respect. Other than that, it was just day-to-day sick call. Some of the things that I was exposed to there made me realize a couple of things. One was what it means to be a tool of U.S. foreign policy. We go wherever that political leadership takes us or needs us. But also I saw about organizing a a healthcare team in these weird settings, these unusual settings, unorthodox settings. We developed a lot of camaraderie working together in a close-knit group with our hospital team. And some of the foibles of, I would call less effective leadership. Some, some things didn't work out so well. And that's kind of lesson, lessons learned, but it was a great experience. So in 1997, you transitioned out of the military. Tell us what was your decision-making process and what it was like working as a family medicine physician in the private sector. Being in the deployed environment was, that factored into my decision-making a a great deal because it was actually while I was deployed in Hungary when the assignments officer called me up and said, okay, time to plan your next assignment. You're going to be finishing your tour in Germany and and here's what I have to offer you. And he listed a couple of possible follow-on assignments. But he also realized that my obligated time in the army was up. I mean, I didn't have to stay in. And so I was balancing those opportunities versus what I was hearing about from recruiters on the civilian side. And at the same time, I was hearing about other government opportunities, such as the State Department. While we were in Hungary, I actually called the State Department medical director and had a conversation with him about, could I transition to the State Department? Because I'd heard that they recruited family practice docs. And he was very encouraging about the military background and the kind of experience that I had, but there was a catch that they, the State Department requires 
five years of post-residency experience before you can even apply. And at that point, I had been out three years from my residency graduation. And he said, well, go get some, some more experience, whether it's in the military or, or civilian, keep involved in wide spectrum family practice. And when your five years is met, you come back and talk to us again. So I ultimately decided to go with the civilian option. One of those was that I was tired of deploying. And that was a, since I was deployed while I had to make those decisions, that was kind of easy to push me over the edge. I was missing my family. My family was missing me. One of my daughters was actually a early teenager at that point. And she said, can we just stop moving all the time? So I saw civilian medicine as a way to do that. And it was great. I mean, it, we ended up in a really great situation in Eastern Oregon, a small town. It's good living for our family. And private practice was great experience, although it had its own upsides and downsides. Well, it sounds like the, the State Department didn't leave your mind completely. And after a decade in private practice, you joined the United States Department of State as a regional medical officer. Tell us a little bit about that decision to rejoin federal service and, and what is a regional medical officer and what do they do? You're right. The thought always was in the back of my mind because we had great experiences living overseas and I had kind of a wanderlust built in. We had, as a, as a child, even we had moved around quite a bit around the United States. And I knew that both of my parents had been overseas with the army and civilian practice just was not meeting all of my financial goals. There were the downsides of being on call constantly, the insurance hassles that are legendary. I mean, we all deal with, if you're, if you're involved in civilian medicine at all about insurance and how it influences our practice. So when I still had that state department thing in the back of my mind, I actually went to a medical conference and met a regional medical officer who had a little booth set up at a family practice meeting in San Francisco. And we talked for a long time about his experience and what, the opportunity that was still there. And at the time, my kids were finishing high school. My youngest was finishing high school and my wife and I were looking at being empty nesters. It was the perfect time to make the jump. So I applied to the job of RMO, we call it regional medical officer. And that basically is an RMO does primary care in a base location. The regional part is regional responsibilities in nearby countries, usually supervising the support staff and mid-level practitioners and coordinating care in nearby countries. We also investigate new relationships with local medical colleagues and what local facilities will serve us best. And overall, as, as far as the day-to-day -day practice, it is much more relaxed pace. There's no pressure to see the 25 patients a day or more in civilian practice. These are relatively small patient populations that we're serving overseas. And it's great to be kind of a fly on the wall of history while we're meeting with the other 
members of, the, of our, what we call the country team and the embassy and the ambassador and his staff. Tell us where you have been in the Department of State and delivering medical care. It's been great. I've been in 14 years now. I started out in Sana'a, Yemen, then San Salvador, El Salvador. One other foreign, uh, foreign to me assignment was Washington, D.C. That was an education. Two years in Washington, D.C. Then Ottawa, Canada, Islamabad, Pakistan, Frankfurt, Germany, and now Singapore. So I'm on my sixth overseas tour, seventh tour overall. And I counted where I've worked. And those are my posts of assignment, but of course, regional responsibilities and, and other TDY assignments, I've counted at least 50 countries and then I've lost count where I have worked at least a day or more and been there for work. What type of healthcare providers are employed by the Department of State? Is it primarily family medicine or do they have all different types of specialties? And do you only take care of Department of State personnel? Do you also take care of host nations when they need it? So our patients are those diplomats, family members, and other government employees. We employ family medicine, emergency medicine, internal medicine, all in a primary care role. So any one of those can serve as a regional medical officer and be in primary care in, as a regional medical officer. We also employ psychiatrists. They are called regional medical officers slash psychiatrists. And we have a large contingent of physician assistants and nurse practitioners who fill one job description. Both of those categories fill the description of what we call medical providers. They are often at the smaller missions with smaller populations and each of those providers is supervised clinically by a regional medical officer. So in my posts, for instance, right now in Singapore, I cover also Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea, and a couple other small Pacific Island missions. But in Malaysia, I have a direct hire medical provider who also happens to be a, a military veteran. And in New Guinea, I have a nurse who is just a local re registered nurse who we've hired and she runs our health unit in that small mission. So I'm often doing remote video care with them and make regional visits periodically to see patients there. So let's say one of your patients requires specialty care. They need a vascular surgery or a urology surgery. What happens to them? Do they get evacuated to the United States or do they go on the local economy? How does that work? As we see them, we're performing their primary care and first evaluations, but part of our job as an RMO is to use those decision-making skills about can I treat it myself or is there a local provider who I can refer to? Is this country standard of care similar to the United States? And can they get care on the local economy for the urology consult or the cardiology or the orthopedics, whatever? Or if my country is not capable to a U.S. level of care and the patient's problem is urgent, can't wait for his next home leave, 
then we make the decision to either medevac to a regional site or all the way back to the U.S. And that's part of the interesting clinical decisions that we have to make is where will this patient's problems be best met? And here in Singapore, for instance, this is a medevac site. So I get patients here in Singapore from all over Southeast Asia and the, and the South Pacific who, whose country, for instance, I'll use an example of patient needing Mohs surgery for a basal cell carcinoma coming from Jakarta, Indonesia. So they're coming here to Singapore for that care. But a patient with a more serious, say, life-threatening injury or illness, such as a new diagnosis of cancer, that's going to need a long, a long treatment course and lots of specialty care, we'll just make the decision to go straight back to the U.S. and send them back. The military is stationed all over the world, just like the Department of State. And what is the reliance that you have or the ability you would have to send a patient through the military networks? It, it is available, but it's fairly limited. The military system, it, you're right, is quite widespread, but they, their mandate is to primarily take care of the military population. So for us to get patient, for instance, it may come up where we don't have the local specialty care, but it's too much of a trip to send them all the way back to the U.S. and, and Landstuhl Germany is an attractive alternative because it's only halfway and, and there's a large tri-service military medical facility in Landstuhl. To get that State Department patient seen in the military facility, it has to be approved at the secretary level. The secretary of defense has to give permission to the secretary of state for our patient to cross that boundary. So it's usually only in extenuating circumstances or a big problem. Like occasionally it happens in places like Afghanistan, where we have patients who run into trouble and uh, need to be evacuated through the military. But most of the time, we, we, if we're nearby a military facility, it's more of a collegial, just comparing notes, sharing intel about the local medical capabilities and working cooperatively like, like that, not often sharing patients. Although on the, on the flip side, if the military, if there are military members posted in an embassy, for instance, we will see them. And if they need referral, we work with TRICARE to get them back into the military system as needed for referrals. So that brings up an interesting question that I have, because last year I was deployed to Baghdad, and that's the Baghdad Department of State complex, where there's the Department of State medical facility, which includes anesthesia, surgeons, which is basically right across the street from the active duty Roll 3 hospital. Why do you think that that occurs and there's that redundancy? That happens in primarily in war zones and where the military has enough troops stationed to make it a, effective to actually have a military treatment facility in place. Either like in Baghdad, it's from what I understand, a fairly standardized fixed facility built up there or a more expeditionary unit like a combat support hospital or some or a smaller unit, but it depends on the numbers of military patients who are there. And 
I think Baghdad now, we used to have a similar setup in, in Kabul, but that one of course has gone away. I think Baghdad right now is the only other example of that happening in a, in a war zone. We have a couple of other places, for instance, I can think of Seoul, Korea, where we have shared some of the military access to military facilities and they are closely located with the State Department facilities, but they're actually moving away from that shared arrangement because of the separate missions that we have. So having spent time both in military medicine and State Department medicine, how would you say that they're similar and how are they different? There's a a big similarity is that both in the military and in the State Department, that employed doctors are the company doctor, so to speak, looking out for the interests of the U.S. government and advising the command structure on the health considerations for the workforce. At the same time, acting as primary care medical home for our patients, where our care is free to them. And that's similar in the State Department system as well as the military system. One of the big differences is that in the State Department, our care is limited, confined to primary care and mental health. Beyond that, our role is coordinating and facilitating specialty referral in the local economy or deciding if they need specialty care beyond our scope, then we evacuate them to where they can get that. So tell me, what is your most memorable case while serving as a medical doctor for the Department of State? It's interesting that when we often talk about the most, some of our most memorable postings and assignments are the earliest ones, probably because they tend to assign us to pretty austere places in our early career. So my first post was Sana'a, Yemen, and this was in the years leading up to their, the onset of their civil war, which is still ongoing. But on my third day on the ground in Sana'a, I had a patient just come to me in our clinic and say, by the way, I've been having some chest discomforts and just, and he went on to describe chest pain, which I thought very well could be ischemic in nature. But I'm in Sana'a, Yemen with a little tiny clinic. So I had to decide what to do with him. And this one just sticks in my mind. It wasn't especially out out of the ordinary because seeing a chest pain patient is a typical thing for family medicine and then getting them the care. But being in, in Yemen, I had to quite quickly find out what were my local capabilities. And there was a university hospital there where they could at least do some simple labs, EKGs, of course, and they had an, an ICU where they could monitor him. We arranged for our patient to go over there and we actually sent one of my nurses to stay with him in the hospital and she monitored what they were doing to make sure that it was okay with us. All the while I was beginning the wheels to turn to get an air ambulance in and, and speaking with my consultants, in this case, to get him back to London for cardiac workup. And that process takes 48 to 72 hours to get an air ambulance in. So we sat on him, monitoring him in the Yemeni hospital for basically three days until he was ready to fly. And that similar kind of thing played out a couple of times in Yemen 
another case I, I remember an appendicitis case, which is just a, a routine thing in the U.S. But again, there I am in Sanaa with a patient that needs abdominal surgery. And do I trust the Yemeni hospital well enough to do that? One of those, one of the things I remember distinctly there was I went over to the Yemeni hospital with this patient who I thought might have appendicitis and they had a general surgeon who was very kind and what seemed to be very knowledgeable to me. And he was working her up, but he came to me and said, well, you're the American doctor. What should I do? And I thought, I'm just a family practice guy. You're the surgeon, you're my consultant, but he's asking me what he should do. And as it turned out, I went with the patient and scrubbed in with them. I didn't perform the surgery, but I was in the OR with them. And they, both the patient felt more comfortable because the American doc was with her and the surgeon was reassured that I wasn't going to be second guessing him the whole time. So those things were very memorable. So the State Department has embassies and personnel in some unstable areas and some fairly dangerous areas. How does the Department of State ensure the safety of its medical personnel and their families in dangerous locations? That's true. Our mission isn't confined to just the embassies in London and Paris. I mean, last last year I spent some time in Kiev, Ukraine, with the, with the air raid sirens going on and having to take shelter, and those places still require our diplomatic presence. So we rely heavily on the diplomatic security service, which is always partnered, fortunately, with the Marine security guards who are at most of our embassies. They're supplemented with host nation protection. That's a part of our diplomatic agreements with it, with these nations is that they also provide security. And in the U.S., we provide security for their embassies. Each mission has an emergency action committee that meets regularly and the, the RMO is an integral member of that. So we're always looking at what are the current risks, security risks, and what can be done to mitigate those. There are changes in that posture from time to time. For instance, if the security situation is deteriorating, they may decide all the family members would do better leaving and will leave just will continue on with essential personnel, essential employees, and that's called an authorized or ordered departure from the embassy. But the medical person, the medical provider, whether that's the nurse practitioner, PA, or the physician, the RMO, usually are among the core staff that stay till the, as we say, until the flag comes down. And we rely on the diplomatic security and the marine security cards to keep us safe. They do a really good job of that. I mean, I really have, even in these most austere se settings, I've never felt really threatened because they make sure that we don't get into too much trouble. So tell us about that experience you had in Ukraine. You said you're in Kyiv. Tell us why you were there and what was that all about? Yeah, last year, well, in 2022, we closed the embassy for a time because of the uncertainties when, when the Russian forces started their campaign against Ukraine. But eventually we tried to see what 
what would it take to reestablish a diplomatic presence in Kyiv to support the Ukrainian government? We started out with a very small footprint of maybe 10 people, but when it got above about 30 people and, and there was sufficient security, we actually wanted a medical person in, in there as well. So we assigned a regional medical officer to reopen the health unit at the embassy. And my job at the time was supervising all of the RMOs in Europe. So at some point that person needed a rotation and needed their periodic breaks. So I went in as the supervising RMO to take a two weeks, a two week turn in the health unit in the embassy. And that was eye opening. Of course, I understood much better after working on the ground, what they were dealing with, what they could and couldn't do and what was realistic in those, in that situation. What would you say was your biggest challenge? Our biggest challenge there in Ukraine is staying prepared and working with our security partners for what our care would look like coming from the air raid shelter. <laughs> and we have our established health unit in the embassy. It's a nice clinic. But when the entire staff has to evacuate to the basement, either of the embassy or the hotel or some other air raid shelter around town, and what would we do if we had a patient injured, for instance, or if during that time when you're spending 12 hours in the air raid shelter, what if somebody develops chest pain then, and what do we do then? So we actually have some additional people that are with us in an expeditionary place like that, we have a cadre of what we call operational medicine specialists who are basically paramedics and EMTs, many of them former military special forces medics who are highly trained and they work with us in those situations. So we could do as, as needed some prolonged field care. And then we also train intensely for those rare situations when we might have to sit on a patient to take care of them in an isolated place. We have trauma training, all of our annual continuing medical education seminars include trauma reviews and planning for that type of contingency. So you mentioned that two aspects of Department of State Medicine that are the big focus or primary care and mental health. Can you also tell us how when your teams are put into these stressful situations like in Kyiv that you also take care of their mental health aspects? Sure. This is where training in, in family medicine has been especially valuable to me because behavioral medicine or mental health is part of the core curriculum in family medicine. Recognizing mental health needs and doing the initial triage and treatment of mental health problems is part of what we do as primary care docs. But I've also come to appreciate these psychiatrists who work closely with us. There are fewer of them than the primary care docs, where I, as a an RMO, I might have a region of five to seven countries that I cover. The psychiatrists that work with us may cover 20 countries, but they're always available to us. And I've used them frequently to I call them up, run a case by them, arrange for a patient to see them by video, or they will, they are also on the road 
frequently making in-person visits to these places. So they are invaluable consultants. It's amazing how much, how often mental health problems come up and how that can immobilize a mission where there are those problems. If a military medicine professional or even a civilian medical professional was interested in the opportunities in the Department of State following their civilian or DOD service, where would you point them to go to find more information? There's a good central portal for that to get kind of the foot in the door. And there's a website, which is careers.state.gov. And that's a, a good landing page that has summary and portals to all the different types of foreign service officers and foreign service specialists. I'd encourage anybody to start there for careers.state.gov and look at the foreign service specialists and that leads to healthcare specialists, both again, the mid-level providers and RMOs. There's another category there, the regional medical lab specialists. I neglected to mention before, they are also a foreign service specialist. But starting at careers.state.gov, we also have a team that is, of course, like any good medical organization, we have our own recruiters and they are eager to talk to anybody who's interested directly. They can be contacted at, it's, if I can give a, an email address, give them a plug, it's for med, med talent acquisitions med tac m-e-d-t-a-c at state.gov is their email and they would love to engage with anybody who's interested so when the history books are written what would you want people to remember about your career both in the military and with the department of state i think the for me the number one takeaway from this career both in the military and in the state department is the difference that I can make in individual lives one by one. And that's the reward for being a physician in, in any aspect. I have formed tight bonds with my patients in either situation, and that's the most rewarding thing for me. But also there's the friendship and camaraderie of our colleagues, the other doctors who we work with, all the nurses, AIDS nurse practitioners that we work with, they, even the admin people that support us, they are wonderful. And it, one of the things is then an additional aspect in the State Department, which I take away from it, is the window on history. The Department of State is about a tenth the size of the DOD. And so the medical professionals have a little bit larger visibility on our teams than I experienced in the DOD. Even as an entry-level doctor, I was sitting on the ambassador's country team and having an influence on what went on in those countries where I was serving. So having a, a sense of contributing to our country's national interest and foreign policy is, is real. And even as a lowly family practice doctor, I can have an influence on that. Well, we've been speaking with State Department Regional Medical Officer, Dr. Andrew Hyatt on Wardock's podcast. Andy, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wardock's. We sure hope you enjoyed it. 
War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.